Amen. There's notes in the bulletin if you like to follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week, last Sunday morning, we started a new series called Little G Gods. And last week was very broad. It was very sort of big picture look at the issue of idolatry. And we tried to just basically approach the issue saying most of us have never been tempted to bow down to statues or to carved images or to pictures, but we very well may currently be struggling with the issue of idolatry in our lives. So that was just sort of a broad introduction. This morning we're going to get specific, and for the next several weeks we're going to be specific, and we're going to talk about specific little g-gods that may be issues in your life or my life. And this morning we're going to talk about the little g-god, the idol of children. That may sound like a strange thing to you, but let me just remind you of a few of the things we said last week. Many times in our lives, we allow good things that God has given us to become consuming things and ultimate things. We celebrate and we're thankful for good things, but sometimes those good things begin to control us, begin to take over our lives. And one of the things we said last week is that a little g-god is anything or anyone that becomes more important to you than God. That's a hard issue that you've got to think about and you've got to be honest with yourself about. I told you that if you're trying to find the little g-gods in your life, you need to look for the things that you love and the things that you trust and the things that you obey. The things you love and the things you trust and the things that you obey. And I warned you last week that little g-gods always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always bring destruction into your life. They will always, always disappoint you. They cannot do what only God can do. They will always fall short. They will always bring destruction into your life, and they will never be able to bring deliverance or salvation into your life. So that's sort of where we left off last week. This is a picture of my little sister, and uh, it's just me and Lindsay, and the picture on the left was taken a few months ago. I feel bad when I put pictures of Lindsay up because by the time she came along, there were not a lot of good genes, good-looking genes left in the gene pool, and uh, she just kind of got the short end. And, but she was a really good basketball player, so that made up for it. And uh, she always played basketball growing up. I've shared some of this uh, with you at different times. She played on an AAU team, and my dad was the coach. He's hiding in the back left back there. And they were really a a good basketball team. They beat everybody in Amarillo. They always won tournaments in Amarillo. No one could even come close to them. And every year they'd go play in these national tournaments. And sometimes it was in Florida. Sometimes it was in Missouri, different places. We traveled to these national tournaments. And they did really well in these tournaments. Twice in a row they got fifth in the nation in girls basketball. And they played all over the place. And we would travel to these tournaments. And if you've never gone to a national AAU tournament of any kind, you should really go. You would really enjoy it. The athletics are okay. The sports, the basketball, okay. The real show is in the bleachers where mom and dad sit or grandma and grandpa sit. And you know this is true. What's true of these these, uh, national AAU tournaments is true at Ratliff Stadium and it's true at the UTPB soccer fields and it's true to the games that you've been to where you've gone and you have heard parents say things 
that just make you blush. Like you can't believe that just came out of their mouth. Or maybe you say things that make you blush and you can't believe it came out of your mouth. Or you watch parents do things that are just out of this world insane and you say, what in the world is going on to make parents act so crazy? And that's just one example of a place you can look where you see that people have allowed children, good thing, to become an ultimate thing, a controlling thing. Let me give you just a few warnings or a few signs to help you know if children, or we would put in parentheses grandchildren, have become a little G-God in your life. We'll move through these pretty quick. Number one, you are living vicariously through your kids. Now look, we all do this. All of us who have kids do this. It's really kind of unavoidable. But you know in your heart, I think, when you kind of cross the line, when the success or the failures of your children become your successes and failures, when you stop letting your kids live their own life and you are now reliving your life through them, you've allowed a good thing to become an ultimate thing. Number two, excessive discipline or no discipline. Pick your extreme. There's some parents who set their kids up on a pedestal. They expect so much from them academically and athletically and socially that they have these unrealistic expectations. And when their kids fail to meet them and those expectations come crashing down, the parents respond with overly excessive discipline. And the New Testament warns about this. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Yes, you are called to discipline them, but you're not called to just crush them with discipline. Maybe more common in our day and age, in our society, is no discipline, no consequences for temper tantrums, for defiance, for rebellion. And again, I don't have to give you all the symptoms of this in our society or where we live, but you see it, evidence that there are some parents who have put their kids on such a pedestal that they absolutely refuse to discipline them. Number three, material overindulgence also known as spoiling them rotten. Parents can do that and grandparents can do that. I'm, of course, not going to give you a list of approved items that you can buy. I'm not going to set a dollar value for Christmas. It's 99 days till Christmas, by the way, today, under 100 days. I'm not going to tell you how much money you can or cannot spend. But you know it sort of when you see it, or maybe you can feel it in your heart where you say, you know what, we are scratching every material itch that these little people have, and it is not good for their soul to do that. And you allow them to become an ultimate thing, a good thing to become an ultimate thing. Number four, abdicating decision-making. This plays out on a lot of different levels. Who makes the decisions in your house, the parents or the kids? Who decides if and when you will attend church, the parents or the kids? Who decides how many and what activities you'll participate in and at what cost, the parents or the kids? Who decides what is appropriate and not appropriate in your household? Who decides what you will watch or not watch, what you will give children access to or not give them access to in terms of technology and the internet and media? Is that the children's decision or the parents' decision? I've lived a lot of different places, and the more I move around, I hope I'm done moving, but the more I move around, I realize people are the same anywhere you go. They're exactly the same. 
And this is one thing I've seen all across the country where we've lived. I've seen parents who just abdicate the decision-making to their kids. The kids just make all the decisions for the family, and the parents don't make those decisions. Number five, this is a kicker. Believing kids or grandkids will make you happy. And this is the point in the message where if you have checked out, you need to check back in. Because some of you have been sitting here all morning saying, well, this was a waste of a week. Maybe you think this isn't an issue for you. Maybe you don't have kids and don't want kids. Maybe you think this is something I've dealt with and moved on from. Maybe you say, I'm past the point in life where I care about this and it's a big deal. There's a lot of different reasons that different people in this room would have checked out up to this point and said, this message doesn't apply to me. But here's the reality. Every last one of us in this room have someone or something out there other than God that we really tend to think, if I had it, if I got it, then I would be happy. And everything that we're going to say this morning about children in this story of a man named Abraham, you can just sort of take it and you're smart enough that you can separate it out and take the principles from the specifics of children and put it to whatever the thing or the person is that you think, if I only had this, then I would be happy. Thinking that children or grandchildren would make you happy. That's some of you. Some of you have children and grandchildren, and you just wish you had someone else's children and grandchildren. And you think, if I, only, if I could just switch, then I'd be happy. I think this last issue was an issue for Abraham. Okay, This issue of having children being the thing that might make you happy. I think it was a real issue in Abraham's life. On the notes, you see some verses listed out. We're going to look at some of these. A few of them I'm going to put up on the screen. Some of them you can go back on your own and read. You read about the story of Abraham and his life and his family in the book of Genesis. Then when you go to the New Testament, you read about him in several places in the New Testament, but there's a short-running commentary in the book of Hebrews about his life, some of the decisions he made, and some of the things that God did in his life. And this morning, we're just going to kind of walk through some of those passages and think about his story. Abraham's story begins in a place called Haran, H-A-R-A-N. He lived with his father and his family there, and he was married to a woman. The Bible tells us she was a beautiful woman. Her name was Sarai. Later it became Sarah, so we'll just call her Sarah. And for the time being, this is a little more crucial to the plot and the development. Abraham wasn't known as Abraham. He was known as Abram. He had a lot of good things going for him. He'd been blessed in a lot of different ways. Two things he did not have going for him as he lived in Haran. Number one, most important, he did not know the one true God. The Bible tells us later in the book of Joshua that Abraham and his family bowed down to literal statues. Little G gods were what they worshipped. So he didn't have that going for him. He didn't know the one true God. Secondly, he was not able, him and his wife were not able to have children. So they didn't know God, they couldn't have children, but they had a lot of other positive things going for them. They were in their 60s and 70s, and that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 12. And I just want to read a few verses in Genesis 12. Abram's minding his own business, doing his thing as a shepherd, working maybe for his father or with his father, taking care of his wife and their household, their servants. And all of a sudden, the Lord, and it's all caps in verse 1, that means Yahweh, shows up and he starts talking to Abram. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a lot to take in when you don't know the Lord. You've never heard of him, you've never met him, and all of a sudden he just shows up on your doorstep, so to speak, and says, hey, I'm the Lord. This is what I want you to do. I want you to leave home, leave your family, leave your people, leave your father, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it's at now. I just want you to go, trusting me. And if you do this, what I'm calling you to do, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to make a nation out of you. A childless senior citizen, married to a barren senior citizen. I'm going to take the two of you and I'm going to make a nation out of you and all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your family. We're so familiar with the story, we just read it and we think, well, of course you would get up and go. But that's a lot to take in out of the blue. And the amazing thing is when you get to verse 4, the very next verse in chapter 12, if I can flip back to chapter 12, it says... Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran he goes the book of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that he goes not knowing where he was going but trusting that the God who had appeared to him and the God who had made these promises to him would deliver on those promises And I think about Abram's life, and I think about how comfortable he was in Haran. Everything was just sort of regular, routine, familiar. And there was one part of that promise, the the leaving and the going and all that stuff that I think really stood out to him, and it was this idea that God was going to give him children. He was going to turn him into a nation of people. And the Bible says amazingly that he leaves, and he follows the Lord. God makes this promise, and Abraham goes. There's always, in the Old Testament, not as many details as we would like, so we just kind of have to fast forward a little bit. And at this point in Abraham's life, we're hitting the fast forward button for about two or three decades, okay? We're skipping over a lot of time. And you get to Genesis chapter 17, and you find out that God is still making promises to Abraham, or to Abram at this point. He's still saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son. He's saying all these things. And 25, 30 years later, Abram has nothing to show for it. Other than he's left home. And he's left his people. And he's left his father. And you read a verse. I, I didn't put it up on the screen. But flip back and look at Genesis 17, verse 5. God says something to Abram that really isn't funny. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Abram means father of many or exalted father. You can imagine what it was like going through life, not having children, not able to have children, 
when everyone calls you the exalted father, the father of many. And God comes to this man and he says, it's time for a name change, Abram. I'd like you to now be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. You can imagine the looks on people's faces when Abram went and said that he was going to change his name. I don't want you to call me the father of many anymore. I want you to call me the father of a multitude. And people sort of probably rolled their eyes. Maybe they laughed behind his back. Maybe they laughed to his face. But it's a remarkable thing that he did what the Lord told him to do. And his name at this point is changed to Abraham. You keep fast forwarding in the story just a little bit further and you come to chapter 21. God shows up about a year later. And he's still making these promises and he shows up and Abraham and his wife Sarah, she's now gone from Sarai to Sarah, they conceive in their old age. It's a miracle. And they have a son and everyone's excited and they name this son Isaac and for the first time they get to have a baby shower and they get to decorate the nursery or whatever you did when you lived in a tent out in the middle of nowhere. You know, they did all the stuff and it was joyful and happy And you just get to that point in the story and they have this son Isaac and you need to hit the pause button and kind of think about what this man's been through. you got to think about decades of infertility for this couple. That's a hard thing for people to deal with. Visit with somebody who's dealt with. It's not an easy thing to wrap your mind around when you're in that position. And it wasn't just these last 20, 30 years that they wrestled with it. It was all of their married life going to all of the baby showers and never having one of their own. Having plenty of material blessings and God taking care of them as they stepped out in faith in amazing ways, but still never having this one thing, this one hole in their life. And God changes his name to the father of a multitude and Abraham goes along with it. And then finally, after decades and decades of waiting, They have a son. And there's this sort of unresolved question as soon as Isaac shows up that you're really not sure about. And if you've been tracking with the story and you've been trying to put yourself in Abraham's position, maybe it's been running through your head. And the question is, did Abraham follow God in the beginning simply because he understood and accepted the fact that this was the one true God? Or did he follow him from the beginning because this God showed up and said, I can give you the one thing that you don't have? Did he love God because God was the only God, the high God, the creator God, the true God? Or did he love God because God had promised to give him the one thing that he always wanted? It's sort of an unresolved tension in the air. And you know as well as I do, there's a world of difference in the life of a person who loves God for what God might or will do for them and the person who loves God simply because God is God. It plays out entirely different in their lives, right? We live in the Bible Belt. Almost everybody is willing to pay lip service to God and pay lip service to Jesus. But so many of the people that we live around do it because they think they're going to get something out of it. And that something that they're looking for isn't God himself. It's another person or it's 
a family that looks like this or it's a bank account with this much money in or it's this sort of position in life or this sort of career or you fill in the blank. There's a world of difference in coming to God for his gifts and his blessings as opposed to just coming to God because he is God. And you get to this part of the story where Abraham and Sarah have had a child and this unresolved tension is just thick in the air. Why does he love God? Is it because he's the one true God or is it because he has delivered on the promise to give him the one thing he always wanted? God decided to settle the issue for us and for Abraham. So look at Genesis 22 and we'll read about God's plan to test Abraham. The scriptures say, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I have books in my office of Bible scholars who look at those verses and say they're cruel, they're twisted, they're demented, they call it divine child abuse, they insist that God would never say anything to anyone along these lines. They just shudder at the the horror of it. And to be honest with you, if you're honest and I'm honest, we may not go that far initially, but we do read them and sort of get uneasy and think, Surely there's a better way to test this guy. That seems a little bit extreme. It seems like you're playing with his emotions too much. It doesn't seem quite right. And I think one of the reasons, or maybe I should say two of the reasons, that this passage, these verses make us uneasy is that there's a couple of things going on here culturally that we don't really understand today. One of the things going on is what God is trying to hammer home to Abraham when he says, take your son Could have just said, take Isaac. Take Isaac, kill him. Instead, he says, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, Isaac. What he's saying is, you need to take your firstborn. And in the ancient world, the firstborn son was everything doesn't exactly work like that in our society, but in Abraham's day it was certainly true. To have a firstborn son meant your family would continue. That there would be someone when you were gone to take care of everyone else. The firstborn son, it's hard for us to get our brains around this, the firstborn son was everything. And God's not just saying, pick a kid and go kill him. But he says, you take your firstborn. And he doesn't say you take your firstborn and you go kill him, but he says, I want you to take your firstborn and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Immediately, Abraham's mind would have gone to sacrifice. And immediately, his mind would have gone to his own sin. And Abraham would have understood something that we don't understand because we don't offer animal sacrifices today. He would have understood, God is calling in my sin debt. This God that I've been following and that I've been walking after, he's not like the other gods. He's a holy God, and I am not a holy man. We could go backwards in this book, and we could find plenty of places where Abraham messed up. 
Abraham stood that, understood that he was in God's debt. And when God said, I want you to take your firstborn, your everything, and I want you to offer it to me as a burnt offering, not just as a senseless murder to see if you're loyal, but as a burnt offering, Abraham heard what God was saying, even though we don't. What God is saying is sin requires sacrifice. In requiring the life of the firstborn as a burnt offering, God was continuing to teach his people that sin requires a sacrifice. This wasn't new with Abraham. You can go back to Genesis when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they try to clothe themselves with leaves and God shows up and God has to offer this sacrifice of an animal to clothe them. There's got to be death and a sacrifice made to cover your sins. You see the same thing when Noah, who the Bible describes as a righteous man, gets off of the ark after the flood and he offers sacrifices to the Lord. Noah's admitting and confessing, I'm no better than all of the people who just died in this flood. Sin requires a sacrifice. A substitute has to die. And when God says to Abraham, you take your firstborn and you offer him as a burnt offering, he's not saying, pick your favorite kid and go kill him. He's saying, you have a sin debt with me that's got to be reckoned with. Take your everything, the most important thing in your life, the most valuable thing in your life, and you're going to offer it to me as this sacrifice so that we will be square. You know that Abraham wrestled with it. You know that it wasn't a flippant decision. It wasn't an instant, okay, let's go. On the one hand, he knows that God is holy, and he knows that this holy God has a right to call his sin debt whenever he sees fit. And because he knows that God is holy, he's not totally outraged when God makes this demand. Have you ever noticed that part of the story? Abraham, who had plenty of conversations with God, at one point even talking about the people of Sodom, having a back and forth conversation about, well, what if there's this many righteous? Well, what if there's this many righteous? Would you not destroy it for this many? This is a man who was bold in talking to God. And when God makes this demand of Abraham, at no point does he say, that seems a little bit outlandish. That seems a little bit unfair, i got to tell you. That doesn't really seem like a God-like thing to do or to require. He understands who God is in His holiness. He also understands who God is in His grace. And he understands the promises that have been given to him. And he knows that those promises are not through his, his other son, Ishmael, but they're through Isaac. These promises are going to be reckoned through Isaac, and he knows that God is a God who keeps his promises, and he's trying to reconcile these two ideas. How can this God I know be holy and also be gracious and merciful, and how can I fit all of those things together? This is what we read in Genesis 22, verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, pay attention to this, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That last Part of the passage is the part where Abraham completely relinquishes his grip on the little g God of his only son and he puts his faith completely, firmly, squarely in the Lord. 
the one who called him to leave his home, the one who promised to bless him, the one who gave him this son in his old age, the one who had done all of these things for him. He had left all of his little g-god statues behind in Haran. And he had settled that issue when he left home. But for all these years, this underlying issue is just sort of there. Are you following God because you love him and you trust him and he's who he says he is? Or are you following him because he's promised to give you the one thing you always wanted? And then when he gets it, the question is, are you following the Lord and are you worshiping the Lord because he's the Lord, Yahweh, the only true God? Or are you doing it because he gave you something that you've always wanted? And he says, you stay here, we're going to go worship, and then we will come back to you. The book of Hebrews says that as Abraham tried to put all these pieces together and reconcile it all in his mind, one of the conclusions he reached was that God, if possible, would raise Isaac from the dead. Meaning, he understood 100%, I need a sacrifice for me and my family. It has to be made. He wasn't objecting to that, but he also knew God will keep his promise to me, the promise to bless me through Isaac. And if he needs to raise the boy from the dead, if he needs to raise my son from the dead, he believed that that would happen. So he says, you stay, we'll worship, and we'll be back. You can read the rest of the story on your own. Many of you are familiar with it. They climb the mountain, they take the wood, he's got the coals and he's got a knife. He binds Isaac on the altar. In most of our minds, we picture uh, a senior adult man with a small toddler. But I think what the text seems to indicate at the beginning of chapter 2 is that some amount of time had passed. That Hebrew phrase at the beginning sort of suggests it's been a while. This is not just a few years after Isaac was born. Jewish tradition, this is not in the Bible, but Jewish tradition says 25 years had passed. So you're looking at a very old man, possibly, walking up with his grown son who was physically able to overpower his father if he wanted to, and they walk up the mountain and the son is bound. And the text says, sometimes we make it a little bit more dramatic than the the text actually makes it out. The text says he reaches for the knife, and that's when God cries out, Abraham, Abraham. Do not harm the boy. And he looks up and he sees this ram caught in the thicket. And Isaac comes down off the altar and the ram is sacrificed. And there's a death. And there's blood. And a sacrifice for sin is offered. And yet Isaac gets to live. That's the story. What do we take away from it? Let me give you just four thoughts as we end. Number one, children make terrible gods. Abraham had to learn that. He spent a lot of years of his life thinking, if only I had this. If only I had this. And then he got it. And he needed to learn that children make terrible gods. You understand and I understand, Isaac would never, never have been able to fill the God-shaped hole in Abraham's heart. Was he a blessing to be thankful for? Absolutely. Would he be able to function as the center of Abraham's life and as the little G God of his life? He would have failed miserably. And Abraham had to learn that. Children make terrible gods. Number two, sometimes when God seems to be killing us, he's actually saving us. From a human perspective, this was the worst 
moment in Abraham's life. God was asking for his everything, for the best thing that he had going. But he was teaching him that even the best thing in your life cannot take my place. He'll be a lousy God. And while it looks like he's killing Abraham, he's crushing Abraham, he's actually saving Abraham from the very thing that might enslave his heart. Again, Abraham had dealt with the issue of the little g-god statues in Haran. Now he's got to deal with the little g-god that's his son, Isaac. God was saving him. Number three, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. That's what Abraham named the place. Verse 14, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You understand, Abraham's family traveled around. They would make trips and they would pass by this land. They would pass by these mountains in Moriah. And they would look up on that mountain. And every time they walked by that mountain, it was just a visible reminder. And they would tell the story about how God had provided the sacrifice. God had provided the burnt offering when their sin debt was called. And they would tell the story and they would remember the whole thing and they would say, on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. The Bible says that many years later, a man named Solomon was charged by his father to build a temple where sacrifices would be offered. And of all the places he could have built that temple, he built that temple on Mount Moriah, the scriptures say. The same place where God sent Abraham with his son, Solomon chooses to build this temple. And every day, every year, at the feasts, when the sacrifices were made, all the time, a perpetual reminder on this mountain, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God will provide the sacrifice for sin so that we can live and the substitute will die. The New Testament says that many years after Solomon, a man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross just down a valley and across the hill from where Solomon built his temple on the very same hill of mountains, the very same range of hills. On the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. And that leads us to the last thing you take away from Abraham's story is that Jesus alone makes sense of it. The only way to make sense of what happened here is through Jesus. Track with me just for a minute and we'll be done. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to offer your firstborn son as a burnt offering. In Abraham's mind, he's clear with what God's asking for. God is asking for a sacrifice for his sins. He's calling his sin debt. The note has been called, and he doesn't object, and he doesn't say that it's unfair or it's not right, and he trusts God to do what is right in this situation. And at the end of the story, Isaac gets off the altar, and the ram that was caught in the thicket gets on the altar, and they kill the ram instead of Isaac. But you've read the end of the story. You've read the book of Hebrews like I have. And the book of Hebrews says the the blood of bulls and goats and animals has never been able to take away sin. When they unloosed that ram from the thicket and tied it up and put it on the altar and slit its throat, that blood that spilled paid for no one's sin. Not Abraham's, not Isaac's, not mine, not yours. So you say, then there really doesn't need to be a sacrifice? What the Bible is telling you is that many, many years later, as Jesus is hanging on this cross, 
just across the valley, up on the hill, on the same range of mountains, the father takes the sin of Abraham and Isaac and all of his people through the ages, and he looks forward into into the future, and he takes our sin and he places it on the son. And the son drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. He's the sacrifice so that we can live. And all that sin that God just sort of proverbially swept under the rug back there in Genesis 22, all of it gets brought out and put on the Son. And all of the sin of His people as He looks down through history gets placed on the Son. And the penalty is paid. And on the mountain of the Lord, it's provided. The sacrifice was offered and the Father accepts it. And you come to the end of the story of Abraham and you say it only makes sense when you plug Jesus into the story. It makes no sense without Jesus. It's a mystery. And it's a mystery you understand when you put Christ into the story. And you walk away saying, look, whatever it is that you think will make you happy, whatever that one person is or or that one thing is out there that you think, if I only had it in my life, then I would be complete. This story of Abraham is reminding you, you don't need that thing to be complete. That cannot be your idol. It cannot be your little G God. What you need is Jesus. He's the one that makes sense of the story. I want you to bow and I want to pray for you and I want to pray for myself. Father, we're grateful for your word. We are humbled to read the story of Abraham and how you worked in his life thousands of years ago. We're encouraged by his faith. It was not faith that could answer all of the questions, but it was faith that trusted you to do what was right and what was best. It was a faith that understood that you have a claim on us, that we're sinners And that we desperately need a sacrifice if we're going to live. Father, we do not trust in the blood of bulls or goats. We do not trust in any good thing that we can offer to you. But we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that allows us to go free. And allows us to live. Father, expose in our hearts this morning any thing, any person that we've set at the center of our lives as if it can make us happy. Father, and give us grace this morning to set you at the center of our lives. Father, be honored as we sing and as we think about the gospel and as we respond to you through worship. Father, as we lift our voices, we lift them to you and to you alone. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.